Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Isn't it amazing that we managed to meet despite the clocks going back, which always puts me in a spin? <laughs> yes, it is amazing. I have to say, if we had been meeting on the morning after the clocks going back, traditionally, I do get things quite wrong on that morning. Why do we always have guests from other time zones so that it becomes exactly this time of year so that it becomes even more complicated and this week we've got guests we've got wonderful guests from the states and when we were asking them I spent my time going "Uh, it's this time for us which is that time for you but I think it might be a different time for us but don't you worry about that so I just worried them unnecessarily but oh frankly they they probably thought we were idiots but we've persuaded them to come on nonetheless for the rest of the week probably I'm going to maybe hide in case of Trick or treaters might you don't be doing need to that. hide. Just get some, just get some sweets in. I suppose. So. I mean, that's. I don't. Know. I sound really grinchy, don't I? No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have the thing in Ireland where I quite like this? It's reasonably recent, but it's quite good. You put the pumpkin out if you're if you're up for it, and if you don't have a pumpkin out, then people don't knock on your door. Yes, but I don't live on a road, do I? It's no, of I limited so. use to me. I suppose so, because if people get down to the end of your road and exactly. then they find there's no pumpkin, they'll be like, Mind you, Do you know what, Lizzie, you're absolutely right. If they make it all the way up a single track road and a muddy, Onto your muddy field, well, it does sound like, I don't own the single track road, but if they make it up our muddy, very non-estate-like pathway, then I suppose they deserve, you know, some pick and mix, don't they? You're absolutely right. I shall just be leafing through Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano, which is a very seasonal read at this time of year. It's set on the the Mexican Day of the Dead. And it's a a kind of one of those brilliant books that's set in a very, very tiny time span. It's absolutely fantastic. But I've also slightly gone into seasonal seasonal reading i'm anticipating christmas is what i'm saying am i gone too early i mean for me a little bit early but are you draped in tinsel and singing carols the whole time absolutely not but i had i couldn't keep a little special christmas story away from because i like janice hallett's novels so much she wrote the appeal and the twyford case and all these great kind of mysteries uh, the case of the alperton angels which are all pieced together there's no straightforward narrative they're pieced together from people's emails and messages and texts and she's done a special christmas one and i'm listening to it at the minute and it's so good it's about a panto Mm, oh, I love a panto. You're educating me, as you always do, Alex. I haven't read any of this. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read Under the Volcano, though, you know, I hear that that we should. 5D merit points straight to the TLS editor's office. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I ever admit these things. 
Anyway, I haven't read any of that, so. Um... Right, your your task for next week, bring us a book that you have reread. And I'll stop sounding, or trying to sound like a terrible clever clubs, because no one likes a smart Alex. And we'll go <laughs> straight into, shall we, our brilliant lineup from, as we said earlier, across the pond. We will be living this week the literary life with George Steiner and Susan Sontag, and getting a clearer picture of George Orwell's marriage. But first... What happens when you get to spend time with not one, but two of your idols, great critics of the age and, shall we say, big personalities? Well, it doesn't always go the way you might want, as we learn from a new book by Robert Boyers. The book's called Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Sontag and George Steiner. The writer, translator and critic James Marcus reviewed it for us this week in the TLS, and we're very glad to talk to him today about it. James, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So can you start us off from the beginning, please? How did Robert Boyers meet Susan Sontag and George Steiner and get to, to hang out with them and spend all this time with them? Sure. Robert Boyers, as a very young, wet-behind-the-ears uh, critic and graduate student, decided to start a magazine called Salma Gundi in 1965. He had scraped together his pennies that he had earned singing at bar mitzvahs and weddings, and uh, he evidently had just enough to get going with a literary quarterly. Most literary quarterlies don't last very long, as we all know. They're the, the mayflies of the literary ecosystem. But uh, Salmagundi is still going nearly six decades later. And um, Boyer's not only kept it going as a magazine, but once it was relocated to Skidmore College in upstate New York, he now had a base to organize uh, summer symposia every year, where he would bring kind of the big brainiacs of the moment up to the boondocks to talk about the great issues of the day. And two of the biggest names in the Salma Gundi stable came to be Susan Sontag and George Steiner, who attended the symposia, wrote articles for the magazine, and, and were just uh, important as sort of the public face of the magazine for some readers. I would so like to be at one of those symposia. Can you imagine? I mean, fly on the wall at one of those symposia would be, you'd just get to see it all, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, as I mentioned in my piece, the writer James Walcott attended one of them on behalf of the Village Voice in 1980 and wrote an absolutely hilarious report about the whole thing, which I either encountered in The Voice itself or maybe in a subsequent anthology of voice articles. Um, it's hysterically funny, but the thing that has to be noted is that there is also a grudging respect for the magazine and for the symposium and, and for the issues being debated there. Even a satirical take on Salma Gundi and its stable of writers included a grudging measure of respect because it, it was a very substantial magazine from the beginning. James, you point out that Boyers is a distinguished critic and editor himself, but in the presence of these two, maybe especially Sontag, or not correct me if I'm wrong, he's happy to be the apprentice and the sidekick and the sort of eternal student almost, isn't he? Yes, he is. He settled into that relationship early on. It's really worth noting that he's written a dozen books or more. He's written for all the best magazines and newspapers in the United States. And, and he has shepherded forward a, a really great literary quarterly for 60 years. So He's a very substantial person in the world of letters. He's he's not a kid and he's not a sidekick, but his relationship with Sontag and Steiner seemed to specifically entail a kind of apprenticeship status. And one of the sometimes funny, sometimes lovely things in the book is how he negotiated that over many years and that he was happy in some way to be the satellite revolving these two giant figures you could say that it's a little masochistic at times, but the tone of the book itself, as he recalls these relationships, is not embittered at all. I think he understood they were geniuses and felt that it was perfectly fine to be something of a very brilliant sidekick for decade after decade. One of the questions that I suppose always comes up when you're talking about these great stars and these great intellectual stars is the extent to which the mystique and the charisma play a part. And you make the point that Sontag had that. Steiner less so, a wonderful phrase that you say, he was a, a sweater wearing polymath with big glasses, you say. He wasn't <laughs> particularly personally charismatic. It was the force of his intellect. But it always makes me think, well, 
if you have an aura of genius, do people sometimes think you're a genius when perhaps you might not be? I think you can fool some of the people some of the time when it comes to the aura of genius. I don't think you can do it that easily for decades at a time. Mm. You're right, though, to point out that these two maestros in the book, Sontag and Steiner, were very different beasts, right? Sontag was an incredibly glamorous pop cultural icon. Even people not involved in the world of letters, even people who didn't read anything, would sort of know who she was and would recognize the rather glamorous photos that were taken of her throughout her entire life. I never met Steiner, but I did meet Sontag once. I spent a couple of hours interviewing her. She was incredibly warm and incredibly gracious, but the charisma pouring off her was unmistakable. Charisma is a hard quality to articulate exactly what it is, but when you are subject to it, you know what it is. There's a kind of ectoplasmic disturbance in the air, and that was definitely going on there. Uh, and it gives me a little bit of insight into how she maintained her friendship for so long with people like Boyers when she frequently really offended those people and mistreated them. I don't mean that the charisma was simply something she turned on and off as a kind of, you know, Band-Aid or bomb, but um, it made you want her to like you. <laughs> you know, you wanted to be in her presence. Steiner, as you say, doesn't seem to have had that. It was really the sheer force of his giant brain box and intellect that compelled people's respect. And the difference in those relationships is clear in the book. But Steiner also, although not a diva, like Sontag, was capable of, as Boyer says, real brutality in his dealings with other people. And clearly Boyer's was subject to that as well. But somehow these two retained their... The title alone of the book, and, and you've just given us a, a clear idea that it wasn't always fun, the title being Maestros and Monsters. Tell us about what happened that one time when Boyer's introduced... Uh, Susan Sontag at an event as a great essayist, which, you know, you'd have thought somebody would be happy to hear that. Right. There's a moment, it may have been at one of these summer symposia, and Sontag had already attended many of them and had been introduced, I'm sure, very reverently by Boyers many, many times. But by now, we're getting into the era when Sontag had published The Volcano Lover and then in America, the, the two works of fiction, uh, late career works for her. And Boyers introduced her again, I'm sure reverently. He talked about her recent fiction, but he emphasized a bit more her role as a great American essayist. And when Sontag took the podium, she tore right into Boyers in front of the crowd and just said, Robert Boyers doesn't get it. After all these years, Robert Boyers doesn't understand who I am. I'm a fiction writer. I was just warming up with all of those uh, celebrated collections of essays. And um, I think it was quite cruel and kind of crazy to be doing this to an old friend. Immediately after the event was over, Peg Boyers, Robert Boyers' wife, who's been very much part of the whole Samagundi enterprise, evidently went up to Sontag and, and yelled at her and said, you must apologize to Robert immediately. I don't know if she did that, in fact, but he forgave her, of course, in the end, whether she apologized or not. And his quality of forgiveness and compassion is evident throughout the book. And I'm really not saying that he's a kind of punching bag. I'm saying there's actually a great generosity of spirit, which you needed, it seems, to have long friendships with these two people. I mean, I suppose one thing is he's sort of kind of been proved right. I mean, you know, posterity is is a long game. So this is only a, very quickly into, into Sontag's posterity. But we do not remember her as a novelist. I mean, in the same way, we do not think of her as a great novelist, but we do think of her as a great writer on culture, don't we? And in fact, Lucy, we were talking about her on the podcast only recently, weren't we? And remembering her staging of Godot in Sarajevo. You know, she did have this great force to make things happen and on the page, but not, I don't think, in fiction. No, I would agree with that. I say uh, in my review that, you know, geniuses are often surprisingly blind to the nature of their own gift. And she very much wanted to be remembered as a fiction writer. It's so clear from this book. It was so clear from the one time I, I, I met her and interviewed her that that was, that's how she saw herself. Everything else had been kind of a sublime warm up, And now she was ready to, you know, unveil her true talents. And I think you're right that her works of fiction are by no means negligible. She, You see a great talent at work on the page, but I think her work as broadly defined a cultural critic is going to far outlast 
her works of fiction. And so Boyers was correct. Boyers was astute on this occasion about her talents, but she just found it unforgivable, perhaps, that he saw that. Maybe she didn't want to hear it so much. He brought them together, didn't he, for a, what sounds like a, a sort of rather legendary six-hour dinner in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, he had developed these very warm friendships with both of them. They knew of each other because they were both pretty prominent literary figures. And of course, he wanted his great friends to come together and for them to have a lovely little, you know, menage of all of them, of mutual adoration going on. So he planned this dinner in New York City. Uh, Sontag said in advance, I, I'm really eager to meet your friend, George. I want to see if he's as intolerable as everybody says he is. <laughs> they were together for six hours, which is a lot of Sontag and Steiner. According to Boyers, it was really pretty good. The six-hour summit was pretty good. But after that, they really could not stand each other, it seems. And it may have just been the force of repulsion involved in two extremely large egos. I mean, people who had a right to have large egos, but sometimes they cannot stand to be in the same room. And so their relations were very chilly. And there's a moment sort of late in the game, as I write about in my review, where they were all attending a, some sort of conference, intellectual conference in Holland, and Steiner refused to shake Sontag's hand, which seems to have been a specialty of his. And she called out to Boyers, who was nearby, saying, please come over and make him acknowledge me, please. And of course, as a reader, you're struck by the enormous childishness of all of this. I mean, they didn't have to like each other, but the kind of you know playground spats that these people would have with each other and with other uh, critics and writers um, it all seems enormously childish, but it's also part of the game. I mean, we all recognize that great artists are often not particularly wonderful people, and this just bears that out. I realize I'm marking myself out as a sublime trivialist here, but I want to know so much more about the dinner. I mean, you know, was there anybody else there? What did they have to eat? What came <laughs> up in conversation? It's fascinating, isn't it? It's one of those things you're wild for there to be a kind of play about or something like that. No, you wish that Boyers had been wearing wire the whole yes, time. Yes, exactly. You know? And, and, you know, he does seem to be a very Boswell-like, hyper-copious note-taker. And that's clear from this book, right? Because he's he reports many encounters and moments and conversations that took place a long time ago. And somehow it seems to fit with his literary personality. Because he is very Boswellian, right? In relationship to both of these people. He's a, a, a brilliant sidekick and acolyte. So my guess is he might have some pretty good notes from the mm -hmm. uh, six hour summit, but he has not shared them in this book. He's discreet in some ways. Yes. Well, the book is a weird mixture of discretion and disclosure because he genuinely loves these two people. That is very clear. And that's a very appealing quality of the book. However, he did not want to write a hagiography. He did not want to just say they were, oh, these wonderful geniuses who, who just, you know, emanated wisdom. I mean, he wanted to do a somewhat warts and all portrait. And there's a good many warts in here. But you don't feel that he's doing it to do a hit job. I think he feels the chronicler's obligation to show you some of the difficulties. But um, the book does not have the sour atmosphere of a hit job. And I find that pretty impressive. It sounds much more charming and I suppose less like a, I don't know, a, a Tom Wolfe portrait way of kind of looking at them. But one thing I was really interested in, think of these two huge egos, obviously in the ecology of the magazine and also at these events, the symposia, there are clearly other people, other contributors to these public events and to the magazine itself. So what are they thinking about the kind of um, elevation of these two luminaries? There must be a sort of seething discontent. There always is in these sort of enterprises. Yes, I think that's true, because in some sense, Sontag and Steiner were the great stars of this particular scene. But there were other people there with perfectly adequately sized egos of their own. <laughs> I think they did OK. I mean... Boy, Boyers did not actually enlist little names. Salma Gundi became prominent so fast that he managed to have pretty well-known people there right from the get-go. So I think those other people did okay. 
I would love to see some footage actually from these symposia. And I'm sure there are extensive audio recordings, but it would be priceless to see some, you know, footage from 1980, you know, James Walcott notes, Robert Boyers loved a good salmon colored tie. And I'm sure there's probably some other great clothing on display. I don't know, maybe there is some old sort of fluttery videotape available, but there were, again, lots of perfectly substantial egos there. And, and it, it was probably a kind of brownie in motion as they just banged into each other. Perhaps they'd all be horrified to think that the book was written about those two. And they'd be like, what, those two? They were no one. What about me? Like, they were nobody. What about yeah. me? <laughs> Who are those yeah, guys? Exactly. I mean, they were very different people, weren't they? Professor Steiner, he wrote for the TLS for many, many years. And they moved in different orbits. But as you say, a lot of their, they were sort of superstars within that that idea of the sort of cultural literary, uh, what's the word, milieu or something, if I can't think of an English word for it brilliantly. You talk in your piece, it's really interesting about the differences between the attitudes of that generation towards reading and writing, this very high seriousness and the strengths and the limitations of that, the difference between sort of that generation of critics and this generation. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's always dangerous to generalise, but... You do sense in both of these people, and I think it's 50% of why Boyers wrote this book. The other 50% is he knew these extraordinary people very well and wanted to commemorate them. But I think he wanted to commemorate a certain very high seriousness about literature, which is not totally gone, but is perhaps less common among critics writing now. I think both of these people thought that there was something priestly something really exalted about being a critic, that you weren't doing a kind of secondary parasitical work, you weren't a, you know, a flea on the dog of the work under consideration, that you were operating in a kind of parody with the writer and in a kind of conversation with the writer, and that writing was as important as life, that it was a species of very compacted quintessential life itself. And that's very, very appealing. And it's very inspiring, I think, to a critic writing now or to a critic writing then. Now, there's a flip side to it, which is that culture is so serious and important that, you know, it can't be left to the comedians. You're not supposed to joke about it. Now, I would stress that both of these people had, they were extremely witty. They had highly developed senses of irony. And of course, they may have been a laugh riot in person. I'm talking about on the page. But on the page, there is a kind of high seriousness that can be inhibiting in both of them. And it's the flip side of what is so wonderful and exalted about them. But I think that's less common now. I think there, there, there are gains from that because I think a lot of the best younger critics writing now are looser and funnier. And they're not paralyzed by the sense of culture being too, too exalted to joke about. But I suppose that, you know, the loss is that kind of exhilarating seriousness that you found in both of these people, which is which is still inspiring, I think. Yes. I mean, you make a really good point that the other kind of flip side, the point where it goes slightly too far, is when they're actually thinking about the things that they, the objects of their criticism as just sort of fodder for their own writing, in a sense. I mean, I don't mean to say that they didn't take works of art seriously. They obviously did. But the parity sometimes slips into, into a sort of ascendancy, a feeling of of ascendancy over the actual producers of the culture, the primary culture. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, I think both of them actually had a fascinating ambivalence about that very question. As I note in my piece, I think they both sometimes had a little bit of anxiety about whether the critic was really as important as the original art they were commenting on. And so both of them wrote some fiction. Sontag wrote more than Steiner. And Sontag, of course, made films as well. So there was sometimes a restlessness, perhaps, of what they saw as the limitations of a critic. But as I also said in my piece, uh, quoting Steiner's Paris Review interview, he felt at least sometimes that we were in what he called the Byzantine or Alexandrian period, when the commentator towered above the original, which is to say that the the original was simply kind of grist for the mill. That seems too exalted (laughs) to me, Uh, you know, exalted to the point of a weird swell-headedness. I appreciate the importance being given to criticism there, but to really to say that the original work is just a kind of raw material for the mulching machine is is weird and too exalted. But I, I think a reflection of only half of what Steiner thought. They both 
sometimes thought they were everything and nothing. And that seems like a healthy attitude for a critic. I wonder if he meant that they were commenting on the greats who were before and that the people producing the original work at the time of his speaking, as it were, that that work was not as great as the as the earlier work. You know, it wasn't as good as it was in the old days, that kind of idea. There may have been a hint of that. I mean, I don't think George Steiner at his most criticism exalting would ever have said that, you know, if he wrote a, a piece on Macbeth, that his piece was actually better than, you know, poor, untalented old Shakespeare. I think when he says we're in a Byzantine or Alexandrian period, he meant a kind of late imperial manneristic period where the greatest work is not being produced anymore. I don't think we can really hold him to that comment as a kind of, you know, career-wide summary of how he felt about criticism. But um, it certainly indicated that at that moment, he did not feel it was a secondary profession. He felt it was fully on par if not superior to the works it was criticizing. Between the three of us, coming from the TLS and acting all of us uh, in different ways as critics, I'd slightly rather go for that than the flea on the dog. (laughs) Well, quite. I'm really struggling not to to be uh, applauding this idea of the preeminent critic (laughs) in the culture. We have to be a bit careful here. (laughs) Must be careful. Somewhere between the flea and the overweening. And God. Somewhere between the God and the flea. Yeah. I take that plus an invitation to a symposium. And even a six-hour dinner, I really... I think that ambivalence does pertain to something important about critics, not at those absurd extremes. In other words, I, I do think really and truly there's an interesting challenge to a critic of any kind where you have to be very present and reliant on your ego to decide what the caliber of the work is. But in some way, you're supposed to be absent or transparent, at least, to let the reader see through your ego and your presence and make some independent decisions about the book. You're supposed to be presenting the original, getting out of the way, but relying on your own taste. And I do feel like that calls upon a strange mixture of ego and egolessness and presence and absence. And so I'm willing to be liberal in my assessment of um, (laughs) how extreme these people could be in their notion of criticism, because it's hard to do both at once. It's a very strange dance. It's such an enjoyable review of what is clearly you found and I can see is a very enjoyable book. But before we we let you go, I wanted to ask you about your own book that's forthcoming, which has the most wonderful title. I wonder if you'd just say what it is. Sure. I have a book coming out in March, which is a book about Ralph Waldo Emerson. The title is Glad to the Brink of Fear. That is a famous and beautiful phrase of Emerson's that is a a way to describe an ecstatic state. In other words, when you are so sort of full of joy and intelligence and emotion that it is is almost unbearable, it's almost frightening. And I I think it summarizes a lot of what he aimed at, what he tried to convey in his own work. Well, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it when it comes out, we'd love that. That would be lovely, I I would love to do that. So please, all you need to do is invite me. (laughs) As Susan Sontag probably never said. <laughs> she probably didn't feel she needed to, but we definitely will, James. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Still to come on the show. The all-too-hidden life of George Orwell's wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. It's been nearly 20 years since the publication of Anna Funder's extraordinary book, Stasiland, a searing piece of reportage from the former East Germany. Funder's new book is another attempt to tell a hitherto eclipsed story, that of George Orwell's wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy. Laura Beers, author of the forthcoming book Orwell's Ghosts, has reviewed Funder's wifedom, Mrs Orwell's Invisible Life, in this week's TLS, and we're delighted that she joins us now. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me on. This was such an interesting piece about what is evidently an interesting book, about what is evidently an interesting story and part of Orwell's life and the whole of Eileen O'Shaughnessy's life. I mean, I suppose to begin with, the story of their marriage immediately seems to follow a pattern we've seen so many times throughout history talented clever wife who puts her own ambitions and work on hold when she marries is is that accurate or is it more complicated than that I mean I think effectively that is the short version of the story I mean there are questions about how she felt about that decision but she clearly did make it she meets Orwell in 1935 when she meets him she not only has a degree from Oxford, which he doesn't, he leaves Eton, goes into the Imperial Police Service, and then comes back and becomes an author. He has no university level education, but she has a degree from Oxford. And then she's studying for a further degree in London, a psychology degree. And she basically abandons her academic career to become effectively his amanuensis. I mean, she's his glorified secretary, his copy editor, his first reader, also his sort of helpmeet and at home who does the bulk of the domestic labor. And it seems to be a decision entirely of her own volition. Mm-hmm. That domestic labor, we should note, was not the simple domestic labor of cooking and cleaning and washing. It was also living in a really dilapidated country cottage that actually is very much harder than it looks, not really that bucolic when you're cold and wet and etc. Yes, I mean, she grows up in Greenwich in really a a very civilized, a very um, comfortable upper middle class existence. And all of a sudden she follows him out to a cottage in Hertfordshire that doesn't have electricity, that doesn't have running water, you know, that has an outside septic latrine and where they're raising goats who, you know, he milks for goat milk um, and chickens. And they have a kind of running tally every day of how many chickens eggs they manage to get and the ones they don't consume, they set up a little shop and sell them, you know, but I mean, there's all this animal husbandry, there's, you know, sort of a large, you know, kitchen garden that's sustaining them, but they're also selling produce, and she's tasked with doing more than her fair share of all this labor, and I doubt it was something that she thought she was signing up for when she met him at a a kind of Hampstead dinner party, you know, and I mean, it seems sort of civilized North London life, and all of a sudden, it turns out he harbors this secret dream of moving to the middle of nowhere and, you know, living like it's still the 19th century um, that she gets roped into. He seems like more sort of Marie Antoinette of this setup (laughs) than she does in a way. She's kind of doing the hard work. Maybe that is my prejudice, Lucy. (laughs) I hadn't realised that they had so little money, I think. I think I had just sort of slightly assumed that, you know, everybody was a bit middle class and 
they maybe had a, a bit less than other people, but they really you say in your piece that she's emptying out the latrine. That's not a comfortable middle class existence, is it? No, I mean, and there's this one sort of dramatized scene because at different points in the book, Funder then kind of narrates what she calls a counterfiction from the perspective of Eileen of their life together. And she has this one very vivid you know, depiction of her having to muck out the latrine. And so, yes, it's not a comfortable middle-class existence, but at the same time, there is the element, as Alex says, of the Marie Antoinette about it, the sort of cosplay, because they have a safety net that most people don't, right? Mm. I and mean, her brother is a very successful Harley Street surgeon. Um, he bails them out time and again. When Orwell needs medical attention, you know, he's not getting the type of medical attention as someone who's in a pre-NHS world, you know, a man of little means. He's getting the type of medical attention of someone whose wife's brother is a Harley Street surgeon. You know, I mean, his parents, though they're not as well off as O'Shaughnessy's family, you know, are not destitute either. I mean, his father's Indian civil service pension, you know, puts him in the top percentiles of, of English retirees at that period. So effectively, they're living on their own means and his means from writing. But if the bottom were to fall out, you know, I mean, they're not destitute or there are people who could bail them out. And the safety net below them was significantly firmer than most people's. Mm. I'm fascinated by that part of the book, the counterfictional version of the Orwell's marriage. It's quite a bold thing to do. Does it work, do you think? I feel somewhat controversial saying this because I I loved reading it. And I literally, I read the book in London this summer and I would find myself sort of missing my tube stop because I couldn't put it down or, you know, reading it, walking down the street and bumping into people, especially because I you know, was habitually walking on the wrong side of the pavement. <laughs> but, <laughs> that was you. We heard about you knocking people over throughout London. <laughs> but, I mean, it's compulsively readable, right? But it's compulsively readable, I think, as fiction and whether how true it rang when I finished it to to Eileen I think is a different question right and it's hard to know I mean neither neither of us knew her and we're both imagining her from you know a collection of the scraps of writing that she's left behind and what others have said about her but the picture that Funder draws of her is, is someone who resents the sacrifices that she's made for Orwell and resents the way that he treats her. I mean, he takes her for granted. He's constantly hitting on her friends. You know, I mean, he's hitting on his friends' wives. He's hitting on his wife's friends. You know, he's sleeping around. He's visiting prostitutes. And, and Funder imagines her, I think, you know, understandably resentful and aggrieved. But I think actually the interesting thing about her is she doesn't seem to have been that resentful or aggrieved maybe she should have been. And it's hard not to feel she should have been when you, you read this and you read her letters and, you know, other biographies of Orwell and you think, oh God, Orwell was terrible. I mean, she should have really hated being married to him, but it's not really clear that she did hate being married to him, even if she should have. So I don't know how true it rang, even though it was so well-crafted and, and very difficult to put down. Do you think it was that Anna Funder is, is projecting 21st century attitudes on to her that that she didn't necessarily have I think there's an element of that right um and this book is written in a post me too moment um something which funder you know acknowledges head on but it's using as its primary source base that gets her into the story a series of letters that she wrote to her friend Nora Miles and those, that cache of letters was discovered in 2005, so almost 20 years ago. And when it was discovered, you know, and the letters had been published, Peter Davison, who did the complete collection of Orwell's works, did a shorter Orwell's Life and Letters that he included these letters by Eileen in, and they're also in the, the broader collection. So they've been out there, right? But I think before the Me Too moment, people just read them. And they didn't think that much of them. And it was, oh, here's his wife's voice and something new added to the story. But I think we're at a place where we've been thinking more in the last few years about the ways that the patriarchy systematically limits and belittles women and the way that women have been trapped in that box for so long. And the anger is bubbling up to the surface, 
right? And you can feel the anger in Funder's writing. And I think there's a degree to which it's projecting that anger back to someone who, who just didn't feel it in the same way, even if we feel for her that she should have. Um, she wasn't kicking against the box um, to the same degree that maybe you know, someone in 2023 might be in the same circumstances, I don't think. I mean, neither of us you know, could tell for sure. And there's also something very personal going on, isn't there? I mean, I've, I've read the book too, and I agree, I was very gripped by it. But she's very clear, Anna Funder, that she came back to Orwell's writing at a particular point in her own life when she was feeling overwhelmed by the pull between the work that she wanted to do and the domestic life and other responsibilities that she had and that kind of led her into this book that's the kind of memoir element of the book isn't it there was an element I particularly appreciated that as someone who's also one half of a dual professional couple with kind of two children of a certain age where and a husband who believes that he's chipping in right and who believes that we have a companionate marriage and all the rest of it sorry Lawrence if you're listening but his belief is maybe you know it's a safe space let's all let's all get it out there <laughs> there's this brilliant moment in um that remake of Sex in the City that's just been out what's it called um oh and, and another thing yeah is, and another thing yeah, where yeah, Charlotte yeah. blows up yeah, at her yeah. husband right and she says you think that you are doing it all now but basically you are doing the bare minimum to keep the ship going and you actually can't conceive of all of the unseen labor that I'm doing all the time and just because I'm doing something for myself now and you're picking up some of the slack doesn't mean that we're now equal partners right but you can tell that Funder kind of feels that way she respects her husband they clearly seem to have you know a marriage where he's not just dumping everything on her shoulders but she's carrying more than half the weight and the kind of oppression of that and the state of kind of her kids development and maybe their lack of gratitude at moments is is weighing on her and um and you can see that it comes through the memoir and it I think it will speak to a lot of women reading it because it's a feeling that almost all women can empathize with right even if they have you know the world's greatest husband who really believes that they're you know carrying their half of the load and doing their fair share Laura, I honestly didn't imagine in this conversation that we would be getting on to Sex and the City and its, <laughs> its sequel, which is And Just Like That. I believe oh, there you called. go. We, yeah, which and I, Just Like That, that's what it's called. <laughs> which I have watched. I must say, we'll take a little detour. Uh, listeners, come back in two minutes if you can't bear anything like this. But I find it an absolutely extraordinary programme, by the way, that makes me think that for all its kind of feminist flauntings, it just makes me feel like feminism never happened. I mean, they're wandering around Manhattan in shoes that you couldn't possibly walk two inches in. They always did that, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> but that yeah. was yes, They're always wearing tutus thing. and six-inch heels and stuff. I guess they would probably see it as a post-second wave feminism, though, where they can reclaim, you know, high heels as something that are not imprisoning them, but that they're owning, sort of like the Barbie movie version of high heels, I guess. No shade on high heels. I can't wear no them myself. Shade no them. shade no, on just, them at yeah. all. But no, I mean, no, if you sure. can't walk, you can't walk. I mean, come on. However, <laughs> back to what we must go back to Orwell. That's Sorry, Orwell. Yes. Sorry yes. listeners. <laughs> of course, what one of the things that is really fascinating are these six letters to the friend, Nora. What picture does Eileen give of her life and her marriage in them? Well, it's a very sardonic picture, right? I mean, she clearly has a very dry acerbic wit and she, you know, she pokes fun at Orwell. She pokes fun at her family. She pokes fun at herself at various points in it. There's a moment that I love in one of the letters where she's writing to Nora after she's first gone to visit Orwell's family, but she's talking about Orwell's family and she says, one of his relatives had a lot of money and slaves, and his son Thomas, who was inconceivably like a sheep, married the daughter of the Duke of Westmoreland, of whose existence I'd never even heard, and went so grand that he spent all the money, and then he couldn't make more because slaves had gone out. And that's sort of the tone in which she, you know, most of her correspondence with, with Nora takes place. The tongue is very much deeply in the cheek. And a lack of reverence, a real lack of reverence for Orwell and everything. But... Did she have this when it came to his work? Because, as you say, she did appear to have 
slotted into that role as his editor, his typist, his amanuensis, and his, in some ways, his literary advisor quite readily. What was her view of his writing? Well, I think she thought it was amazing, right? I think she wouldn't have ended up with him, nor would his second wife, Sonia Ronwell, either, for that matter. I think had she not appreciated the genius of his writing and believed that the sacrifices that she was making for her own career were worth it in the furtherance of that genius. Because she really does, you know, once they get married, she becomes his helpmeet. And the reason of her existence really becomes to further his literary career. And so I think she saw in him this kind of spark of genius, and she saw it before most people did. It's often said that the character of Rosemary in Keep the Aspidistra Flying is based in part on Eileen, but that's one of his earliest novels, and it's not a big seller. And we still read it now because of Animal Farm, because of 1984, which has kept all of Orwell's earlier work in publication. But in the 30s, he was waiting for his moment, and she was believing in him before that moment finally arrived with the publication of Animal Farm. It's actually a, an ambiguous novel, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, in terms of his relationship with Rosemary and her position in that book. Does she get him into a life of domesticity? Does that save him? Or does that mean none of his literary ambitions, his other ambitions will be realized? And the reader is left, you say, wondering that. So it's a kind of, his ambiguous relationship with women who evidently were helping him enormously, but he had some sense of having to keep a kind of artistic freedom going that somehow they were encroaching upon. Would that be fair, do you think? I think so. And I think that there is an element to, you know, their marriage was about as unconstraining as a marriage could be on a man, right? She really kind of let him do as he pleased let him continue to have these extramarital liaisons, let him, you know, he didn't have to pick up the laundry after him. He never had to make the bed, I'm assuming. He didn't have to live any kind of orthodox normal life. I mean, he drags her out to the middle of nowhere to raise goats and chickens. But still, I think there was probably an element of him that saw settling down and getting married as somehow, you know, a constraint or a cage that he he couldn't let himself be boxed in by. And so there is that kind of, you know, kicking against the walls instinctively, which you see in, I think, some of his yuckier behavior, for lack of a better word. You know, I mean, some of this kind of gratuitous infidelity. And, and there is another letter, or not a letter, it's a scrap from one of his journals, which are held at University College London, of sort of most of which are thoughts towards short stories or novels or articles he never wrote, but where he talks about kind of the prism of marriage and how, you know, once you're trapped in a marriage, you realize that your wife never picks up after herself and that she's, her sexual appetites can never be sated. There is a sense, I think, that he's, he sees marriage as being tied down, even though Eileen did her best to make sure she wasn't constraining him in any way. Wow. And there was a sexual ambivalence about that. I mean, from that description. I sort of wonder, I mean, it's difficult to know again, because I've read those diaries journals where he has penned that passage and it's, it's stuck in between other bits and pieces that are unrelated, right? That are in some ways an author's notebook. And so you wonder, is this Orwell kind of characterizing his own marriage or is this Orwell projecting a character? Because not just keep the Aspidistra flying, but coming up for air, you know, many of his novels have a kind of Orwell, but worse main character, right? Um, George Bowling and coming up for air is kind of an Orwell character, but fat and defeated and a traveling salesman. And in keep the Aspidistra flying, he's sort of, you know, the Orwell character, but grosser, Gordon Comstock. And... So it's hard to know for certain, you know, what's going on with that passage, but it certainly hints at a feeling that marriage is, is on some level a con, no matter whom you're married to. I was amazed to see that you say that you refer to a poem that she wrote, a dystopian vision of the future called End of the Century 1984, which, yeah, you know, <laughs> did she have any influence on his work, we wonder? <laughs> It's interesting to watch some, you know, Orwell scholars who tried to tie themselves into knots 
making the case that she didn't, right? That it was just coincidence that this poem that she published, you know, and it was for her school graduation year in, in 34. And so it's kind of imagining forward from 1934 to 1984 and this kind of future dystopia. But given their relationship, which was one of mutual intellectual respect, it's almost impossible to think he wasn't very aware of its existence. And I think it's, it's hard to imagine too, given how much he clearly felt her absence after she passed away. And 1984, his last novel is, is published after she's, she's died, that it isn't a kind of homage, right? It's not like necessarily this poem that she wrote as a schoolgirl inspired his great dystopian novel. But I think the title is, is not coincidence. And those who try to paint it as coincidence are, it's a bit of special pleading, I think. Yeah, quite. <laughs> she did have quite an impact on Animal Farm, didn't she? It's definitely, you know, Ben argued that she did, right? But it's more lively, that it's more human, that the sense of humor is um, a bit more to the fore. I mean, Orwell's humor is, they're both of them had a sardonic sense of humor, but I think she also had a bit more of a playful side than he did, and that that comes through in some of the descriptions of the animals in Animal Farm. And there is, you know, his longtime friend um, and editor, Richard Reeves, says that about him, you know, that his writing improves after he marries Eileen. And to what degree that's because he's happily married and to what degree that's because he has now a, a freebie editor at his side is, you know, is open to speculation. One of the things that we've seen over recent years is Orwell's reputation. I mean, his literary reputation and also his personal reputation undergoing reappraisal, which is, is something, of course, that happens to many writers and artists and creators after they die when they occupy such a big place in the in the canon, I suppose. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the more recent analyses or, or where you see it all standing at the minute. I think few people right now would say, oh, Orwell was not problematic or that Orwell's attitudes towards gender weren't problematic. And in some ways, wifedom only scratches the surface of the things that are really super problematic about Orwell and gender. I mean, if we think back to the plot of Keep the Aspidistra Flying, the way that Rosemary chaps Gordon Comstock into marriage is by becoming pregnant. It's not a story of trying to get a husband through pregnancy. Instead, he kind of forces himself upon her. She gives in because she doesn't want to disappoint him. He insists on not wearing a condom. She becomes pregnant. She tries to abort the pregnancy by taking pills without success. They have a conversation about whether they should get married or whether she should have an abortion, which she's willing to do. And he says, oh no, abortion is terrible. Like no one should ever have an abortion. Forget about you know, what either of us want from our lives. We're gonna get married and be shackled to domesticity and put an aspidistra in our window. But I mean, Many of his other novels similarly have, you know, they write off women and their agency and just kind of presuppose a certain patriarchal view of the way the world works. And he famously writes in The Road to Wigan Pier when he has that rant that probably many of us have heard at some point against cranks within the left. And he says, every fruit juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure quack, pacifist and feminist in England seems attracted to the Labour Party. And feminist is slotted in there with, you know, um, sandal wearing nature cure quacks and pacifist as, you know, people who are somehow beyond the loony pale of the left. And even at the time, people would have, I think, thought that was a somewhat problematic characterization. But for Orwell, the gender order is so he's so unquestioning that patriarchy is the way, the natural gender order. Um, and it comes through over and over in all sorts of places in his writing, as well as, you know, in clearly his dynamics within his marriage and his interactions with women. I mean, there was, Dionne Venables came out with new edition of her cousin, Jacinta Budokam's memoirs from her childhood about her time with young Eric Blair, as he was then, they grew up as neighbors on the South Coast and talks about the fact that Budokan hadn't included any discussion of this incident in which he had attempted to sexually assault her. And she had then fought him off and run away. And their friendship, which had been very close and very intimate and clearly Orwell had hoped would be even more intimate, was abruptly ended and not to be resumed for two decades until 
the very last days of Orwell's life. And when that reissue of Eric and Us is, comes out, there's some discussion, including in the pages of the TLS, about it, right? And George Bowker, who has written a biography of Orwell, you know, the headline that the magazine gives it, not really to its credit, I would say, is Blair's Pounce. You know, it's well, Blair is still prime minister, and it's clearly a play on, on Eric Blair, Orwell's given name. And Bowker says, well, you know, the pounce was Orwell's preferred mode of seduction. And he uses it again and again, not just in this childhood sexual assault of his friend. But then in The Guardian, you know, there's a kind of dismissive, well, you know, some people have said this is sexual assault, but really, you know, it just seems like a failed seduction. And you just think, oh, God, <laughs> mm. it's not that long ago. You know, I mean, we're talking about not even a couple decades ago. But I think now in our post Me Too moment, you know, people are less willing to just say, oh, well, this is boys will be boys or well, and this is the way things were. And he was just a product of his time. Because actually he's sort of ickier than just a product of his time. It's like a bad product of his time. He's the kind of grosser version in terms of his, his gendered attitudes. And I think that sits less comfortably with people now than it did, you know, years or decades ago. We should say that also in that your review is in this week's paper, and there's also a review of Sandra Newman's Julia, which seeks to redress some of the imbalances of 1984 by telling Julia's story and actually even to the point of giving her a, a surname, Julia Worthing. She is in the book, but uh, she doesn't have a surname in 1984 itself. So there's all sorts of ways of various kinds of redress, I suppose, being made. But I must ask you about your own book, which is is coming next year, isn't it, from Hearst Publishing, and it's called Orwell's Ghosts, Wisdom and Warnings for the 21st Century. So I wonder if you'd just tell us a bit about that. So Orwell's Ghost is, it's looking at through a series of lenses. There's a chapter on, you know, free speech, censorship, and fake news. And then there's a chapter looking at political systems and totalitarianism. And a chapter which I particularly love looking at inequality, because I think some of Orwell's best writing is his writing on inequality. And The Road to Wigan Pier really um, is such an underrated but wonderful book, which everyone, if you haven't read, should go out and read. But there's also a chapter on the patriarchy and on Orwell's attitudes towards gender, which really isn't looking so much at his marriage to Eileen, but is thinking more about things like the fact that Julia in 1984 isn't given a surname and she isn't given much of an identity. One of the other things in 1984 is we know exactly how old Winston Smith is. We know that Julia is probably in her late 20s because that's how old Winston thinks she is, right? We never learn her age in any definitive way, only how she's refracted through his eyes. And if you look at the way that he writes about women in both his fiction and nonfiction writing across his career, there's sort of patterns of casual misogyny and patriarchy, patriarchal assumptions that come up again and again. And that is one of the things that I address. And, and it's, it's difficult with me because I do admire him vastly as a writer. You know, I admire him as a kind of undoctrinaire socialist and someone whose sort of socialism for him is really a kicking against what he sees as the the classed injustices of the world he lives in and the lack of opportunity that many people face and the sense that inequality is is a sin in and of itself and his recognition that he benefits from from that privilege even if he can't really get outside of the box of benefiting from it right he remains an old Etonian until till he dies and so it goes back and says, okay, these things are problematic about Orwell and I'm not going to dodge them. And I'm gonna look them in the eye and we're gonna talk about them. But there's also so much value for how we think about the 21st century, particularly in this crazy moment of kind of disinformation and fake news and worries about kind of censorship and information tunneling that you, know, you don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. You do not. And that just sounds absolutely fascinating. You know, our first guest, Lucy, you remember James Marcus, we said, well, you must come back and talk about your book about Ralph Waldo Emerson. And now yeah. I'm going to say the same thing to Laura. You must come back and talk about your book uh, when it's published next year. 
Well, I would be more than happy to. We'd be delighted. And in the meantime, we're just so grateful to you for coming and talking to us about Eileen O'Shaughnessy. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to James Marcus and Laura Beers. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.